Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. There was really nothing that psychological science had contributed to understanding this behavior. And here I am, I'm a social psychologist. I'm supposed to understand thoughts, feelings, and behaviors and how those are influenced by the context, the situation, whether it's real or imagined. And I couldn't tell you in 2010 what, why people BS and what the consequences were. Those basic questions we didn't have answered. So I, I tackled it and I, I thought there's no better word for this behavior, which is distinct from lying. It's not lying. It's often confused for lying, but bullshitting is not lying. So the, the liar knows and cares about the truth and the liar does not believe what it is they say. The bullshitter, on the other hand, doesn't care what the truth is. They're not paying <laughs> any attention to it. In fact, what they say sometimes just by chance, by accident, is actually correct. But even they wouldn't know it because they're not paying any attention to truth, established knowledge, or genuine evidence. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. John, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you for having me. It is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a book out called The Life-Changing Science of Detecting Bullshit, which I, uh, as we said you know, before we hit record, was probably one of my top five favorite books that I read this entire year, all of which we will get into. And I want to start with, with what I think is a, a very relevant question, given your background and the work that you do. And that is, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on what you ended up doing with your life and your career? Wow, great. Yeah, I I um I was actually um in a small group, I guess, of uh of what you might call nerdy jocks. <laughs> I was in the nerdy jock group. Whereas I did I did sports um throughout the year, uh football, wrestling, track and anything uh really but but um but academics still came first and I was just interested in really everything. By the time I got to college, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do um, because I had so many, so many interests. Um, but yeah, if there's one sort of prototypical group that I, I guess I belong to um, during my, you know, my elementary and high school years leading into college, it was that, and that, that also uh, 
spilled into to college. Um, so I had quite an array of of interesting friends too, because um, I had friends in both sort of both groups the the uh, the sports addicts and the and the people who just wanted to uh, learn and or had interest in science and and math and th- and things like that that uh, really kept me busy. I was a busy kid and um, just read as much as I I could. I for some reason or another I, I was attracted to books on Vietnam War when I was like twelve or thirteen. For some reason I don't know they, they kind of looked interesting. <laughs> and I read I, I mean I'd be reading uh, letters home from um, from Vietnam you know at twelve and thirteen and and. Um, um, sort of just went went from there, and then reading uh, sports books, and then and then into into classics. Um, F. Scott, anything F. Scott Fitzgerald, Great Gatsby, just just captivated me. The writing is just beautiful, <laughs> and and so yeah, I was sort of a, I guess, sort of an anomaly because uh, you, you don't you really don't see many of those. Um, and I try to recruit these types of students to my research lab um, because I know they're out there. Um, and, and, you know, talent and creativity are, I think they're spread throughout, uh, pretty evenly throughout, you know, the masses. And, um, so I try not to pigeonhole, um, students into one, one group. Cause I certainly wasn't, um, uh, in just in a single group. And, and, um, I think that's, um, you know, it's just, it's led, it's led me to a career, um, that that fits me perfectly. So I'm at, I'm at Wake Forest University, a, a social psychologist in Department of Psychology, and and this was my number one, really, it's really my number one dream job um, because there there truly is a, I, th- I think there's there's a lot of lip service <laughs> from one one university to another that, that value both teaching and research, but I really think. Um, Wake Forest is one of the the best compromises of that, and 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 values both teaching and research equally. So um, I've always been sort of a hybrid and interested in just more than one thing, and that's I think has also kind of led also led my my research career as well. So. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing that really strikes me uh, about you is that you seem to have had this very deep intellectual curiosity that really kind of sustained throughout your life from a very young age. You're an educator. Why do you think that that isn't more common? Why do you think people don't ever discover that in high school? And a lot of us, you know, go all the way through college. And by the way, we share a love for Fitzgerald in common. That's why I actually <laughs> became a writer. But uh, the thing is, it didn't yeah. come full circle until 20 years later and getting fired from every job I ever had. And, you know, as an educator, what do you think happens to that? Like, I feel like I don't know many people like you in that sense, or I didn't when I was growing up. Yeah, well, if if I could go back um, to those days, what, what I would have um, applied, what, you know, what, if I had known then what I know now, um, I would have explored much more doing sh- maybe some job shadowing, internships, practicums, those types of things, or anybody that would take me in that I was interested in, even for a day or a week or whatever, you know, unpaid, just to explore the world of work. Um, even by the time I was in in psychology, halfway through my undergraduate uh, degree. I still didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, and I 
sort of foreclosed early on, well, I guess I'll be a social worker or a, a psychotherapist or a counselor or clin- clinician of, of some type. I, I thought, well, that's what everybody does in psychology, but that's not true. Um, there are, there are positions everywhere in, in business, marketing, organizational, um, behavior in law. I mean, it's, it's all over the place you know, statistical applications are useful everywhere. And these are things that, that psychology majors, um, should and, and could take more advantage of if they actually saw what the world of work actually look like. So that's what I do is encourage students to, to seek those opportunities and see what it's like for eight hours a day, you know, because Honestly, I, I got quite um, bored in the clinical arena. <laughs> okay, I was I'm, I'm much more of a of a researcher. I like to surround myself with interesting people and interesting ideas, and and explore those even more through through the science of psychology. And that wasn't even on the radar for me during my undergraduate years, because I, I was, I didn't know that you could have a career in that. Um, so uh, I would, I would, I would have done more of that. And um, I think that, that so many students also, um, they, they tend to foreclose if they do lean towards education. It's really based on the fact that they've, they've sort of job shadowed in a sense through, you know, from kindergarten through 12th grade, you know, if they're in you know public or private school they that's that's the one profession that they have seen more than any is is the teacher and a lot of people are attracted to um the the profession and when you ask them so why did you why did you become a teacher why did you become a high school teacher or what you know and and a lot of them will tell you unfortunately well you get you get the summers off and all of the holidays <laughs> off and um it's pretty it's pretty easy once you do it a, a, for a few years and I'm thinking like gee well sounds like the last thing you want to do is teach <laughs> you know you talk you go straight towards all the times that you won't have to be now uh, certainly we have we have wonderful you know well trained um passionate teachers today but I don't think in until we until we start paying teachers um, what they actually deserve, it's it's not going to be a profession that attracts the best and brightest. The same thing happened with with nursing many years ago. Until people realize that that the quality of nursing has a huge impact on the quality of healthcare delivery, um, until we realize that, we really weren't paying nurses what they what they deserve um and then as soon as we did then healthcare improved right away um and then you also had um you had people that weren't usually looking at the career like men for instance um being interested in nursing i I don't think i don't think we're going to see a change until we attract the best and brightest um to be teachers i think it's one of the most important jobs there really is and and it's i think it's just not valued um, you know, across the across the board, as as much as it should be, um, and we're we're passing we're passing on some of the best and brightest towards the profession simply because we're we're just we're not valuing them enough. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. No, oh, absolutely. I mean, I it was funny. I, funny that you know we're talking about that because this morning I was writing. I was like, I think teachers are the most underpaid, underappreciated people in our society because every one of us can probably point to a role that uh, a teacher played in our life. I think you know teachers cause us to mm-hmm. end up where we're at, and they don't get anywhere near the credit they deserve. But one other thing that I wonder about, you know, I always jokingly say that you know, despite being a Berkeley undergrad and having an MBA, mm-hmm. I'm a failed byproduct of the education system uh, because you know I had terrible history with jobs. And you know, to your point, I think that one of the things that ends up happening is people pigeonhole themselves very early on mm-hmm. with with mm-hmm. you know collection of no data points. It's like, oh, you know, Indian parents basically say, "Go become a doctor." His kid has never set foot in the hospital or taken a science class. Basically, makes a decision about how they're going to spend the rest of their life. Um, so, one thing that I and this is something I ask every single person who I talk to that's a college professor. Uh, you know, we're in kind of a mess as far as higher education goes for student outcomes. You know, people are riddled with debt. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not starting families. They're not buying cars. They're not doing the things that actually move the economy forward because they can't. Um, 
So if you were tasked with redesigning the education system from the ground up to prepare us for the you know next 50 years, what mm-hmm. would you do? Mm-hmm. Which I realize is a massive question. Yeah, well, I, I've thought about this a lot, um, and and I hope my answer is 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 acceptable. Um, I don't have any data to <laughs> that speaks to the effectiveness of it, but I have a, a very strong hypothesis that if you if you improve and focus on uh, basic communication skills, work that back into the curriculum. Um, and while you do that, work back into the curriculum, um, basic critical thinking skills. <laughs> okay. So, so when I was growing up, um, people asked for the time they would, they would interrupt. They would say, excuse me, sir, can I please have the time <laughs> today when people, you know, if, if they don't have their smartphone on them, they're not checking their or they don't have a watch on them. It's today. It's like, Hey, what time is it? <laughs> I'm like, are you talking to me? <laughs> you know, the ba- basic communication skills are suffering. People are, are not learning this in their, you know, in their 12 or 13 years of, of uh, elementary and secondary, you know, uh, schooling. So um, critical thinking skills also has, I think, just gone out the window even before uh, before I was a senior in high school. I think it was my senior year in high school that my science, my biology teacher asked us for a homework assignment to simply critique the book. So he had, a, he had assigned a new textbook he hadn't used before and we all sat there thinking like, what in the world is he asking us to do? Critique the book. He even gave us examples. He said, I'd like you to critique the paper, the pictures. How easy is it to understand, to find things? You know, like, and we were all kind of like, kind of clueless as to what he wanted. And I know most of us didn't actually give him what, what he wanted in this homework assignment. But that was the first time somebody asked me for my opinion <laughs> in a class to to you know to give a an a, a, an informed opinion about something that wasn't just you know repeating back you know facts or 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 things that I had learned in class so so basic critical thinking skills can take us so much further in life decisions whether they're you know their academic career or or relationship decisions there was something you mentioned that um, about the messiness of basic what way I thought about what you were saying is that the messiness of of data collection um we know from scores of cognitive psychology studies and social psychology studies that that personal and even professional experience is the major driver of the inferences that people make about the world how things work and what's going to happen in the future Okay, so that data collection method, though, is rather messy. Okay, it is the what we get through our own personal experience, oftentimes is random. It's <laughs> it's unrepresentative. It's ambiguous. It's absolutely incomplete, considering yeah. the 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 number of things that can happen and the types of data that you can actually collect. It's certainly inconsistent. 
and many times it's indirect. It's second or third hand, um, and, and oftentimes surprising or counterattitudinal and not necessarily things we always want to count. So, when you take the example of kind of figuring out, you know, a, a, a 17 or 18-year-old trying to figure out like, okay, what, what do I want to get into? What, what do I want to train myself and prepare myself for, um, for a career? It is extremely messy, and the data collection needs to be um, it needs to be different. But 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 critical thinking skills and basic communication skills, I think, will take students much further along optimal decision making, the path of optimal decision making, more so than all of the facts that they learn. Um, there's a great study actually done. Um, I'll never forget. Uh, it's it's uh, it's it's rarely cited, but it's 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 one that I've been um, sort of broadcasting um, throughout my career. And it was a study done by Marsha Baxter Magolda, and she studied um, at uh, Miami University of Ohio. She did a longitudinal study with with the same group of students for all four years of their undergraduate days, and and she interviewed them their freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior year. And she asked them in the interviews some of the same questions each time. One of the questions she asked them was, where does knowledge come from? Or what is, how do you define knowledge? And what she found was in their freshman year, most students think, well, knowledge comes from the textbooks. It comes from the authorities. You know, it comes from my notes and the lectures. It's, and what she did, she found that by the time they were seniors, they were finally scratching the surface of realizing that knowledge is actively constructed, that they actually have a role um, in understanding and, and contributing to what we think of as established knowledge. Um, like in, in science, we know that you know probably half of what we, we think is true, certainly in psychology, maybe, maybe less so in other, some of the hard sciences, um, but certainly in psychology, I, I mean, I tell half of my my students, I tell them half of what you are going to learn this semester is probably wrong, or <laughs> that it's that it's that it's maybe partially correct under these circumstances, in these situations and contexts, it's correct. But then, but when you change the context, the situation, it's actually wrong. Actually, the opposite is correct. And when we, as we continue to find these factors that we we call them moderators. Or the factors that interact with what the variables that we already know, it becomes it becomes fascinatingly complex, um, and you're just not. I don't think you're ready for that if you don't have a good grounding um, in basic kind of critical thinking skills and asking like, well, you know, how do I know this is true? You know, uh, what what kind of evidence actually led me to this conclusion? Uh, and until you until you start to scratch the surface, I think. Um, most most students are just kind of kind of shooting in the dark, um, and and they will develop attitudes and opinions and beliefs, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be based on evidence, um, like genuine ideal evidence, as opposed to um, explanation, which is often confused for evidence. Nah. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue into actually talking about the concepts in the book. And I think the thing that made me laugh was that you literally call your lab the bullshit studies lab. 
Uh, how in the world yeah. did you arrive mm-hmm. at a place where this is what you decided to make the focus of your life's work? And how in the world does a university get away with get calling you know a lab the bullshit studies lab? Yes. Well, I had I have a big um, sort of um, favor already um, completed for me by Harry Frankfurt, the analytic philosopher uh, emeritus professor emeritus at, from Princeton University, who had written a a paper in 1986 called On Bullshit, and he defined it as a topic worthy of studying um, empirically. Um, And he defined bullshit as just communicating uh, with little to no regard for evidence, truth, established knowledge, and, and basically talking about things of which one knows little to nothing about. And, you know, by that definition, we... It, we could say, well, that's that's got to be one of the most pervasive social behaviors there are, <laughs> right? But 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 um, some people took him seriously. Some people thought it was you know cute and uh, a joke. But he was dead serious. And when I encountered the the paper, um, I thought, okay, no one's really going to take this seriously. I would I would love to look at uh, when does it occur? Why does it occur? Under what circumstances can we attenuate this behavior? What are the consequences? Are there benefits to it? Are there, are there drawbacks? You know, why do people do it so much? Um, because by that definition, gee, that's hard. It, it's hard not to bullshit because to do the opposite, to be connected with genuine evidence, established knowledge and truth consistently um, and constantly is very, very difficult to do. Um, and so, the number of things that we're supposed to have opinions about, and we often feel obligated to have and share opinions about, um, is so large that it's it's just impossible to have a well-informed opinion about everything. You know, and it's just it would take forever. We wouldn't we wouldn't communicate much at all. You know. You know, this podcast would be uh, maybe three days instead of an hour. You know, <laughs> yeah. it would take us time to do the fact checking. It just we we wouldn't really function. So, um, so that work was sort of already done in two thousand, uh, I believe two thousand one or five, uh, like nineteen, yeah, nineteen years later, um, a publisher took Harry Frankfurt's twenty-page article and made it into into a book. But it was, and it's one of the best selling books in philosophy of all time, but it's for word for word, it's that 20 page article. The the pages are smaller and the margins are big and the font size is big. But, but um, I used this definition. I thought we need to know more about this. I was quite dismayed to find that um, when I started this work about 10 years ago, that there was really nothing that psychological science had contributed to understanding this behavior. And here I am, I'm a social psychologist. I'm supposed to understand, you know, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors and how those are influenced by the context, the situation, whether it's 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 real or imagined. And I can't tell you, I couldn't tell you in 2010 what why people BS and what the consequences were. Those basic questions we didn't have answered. Um, so so I, I tackled it, and I, I thought there's not an, there's no better word for this behavior, and it which is distinct from lying. It's not lying. It's often confused for lying, but but bullshitting is not lying. 
So the, the liar knows and cares about the truth, and the liar does not believe what it is they say. The bullshitter, on the other hand, doesn't care what the truth is. They're not paying <laughs> any attention to it. They don't care what the truth is. In fact, what they say, sometimes, just by chance, by accident, is actually correct. But even they wouldn't know it because they're not paying any attention to truth, established knowledge, or genuine evidence. Okay? But, and the bullshitter often does believe what it is they say. Okay? So, so those are the, some big differences. Also, socially, um, we treat bullshitters with usually a kind of a social passive acceptance. We think, oh, it's not a big deal. Um, he's just BSing us, you know, but, but if your friend lies to you, usually that's followed up with quite a bit of anger and disdain. And your friend may have to tell a hundred truths in the future to now gain their, their, for them to gain our trust and our sense of their, their honesty. So, uh, so they're very different. The consequence, social consequences are very different. You could be fired for, for lying, right? But for bullshitting, it's like, oh, you might even get promoted. She's for just being trying to bullshit. connect with people. Yeah. 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 Well, so I, I, this is why I think this book struck me mm-hmm. so much um, because we live in this sort of information age. You know, I mm-hmm. interview people and it's funny. I tell my, uh, you know, people who I teach to frequently to consider the possibility that what I'm telling them is bullshit because it might be in the context of their lives. And mm-hmm. so that's one of the things that struck me so much about this book was that you really went deep. Um, you know, one of the, you opened the book by saying, although it's an unfortunate reality, many of our memories, beliefs, attitudes and decisions are based on bullshit rather than evidence-based reasoning this is why a deeper understanding of bullshit might be one of the most important intellectual and social issues that we face and you say perhaps the greatest cost of bullshit is the fact that the time and effort required to undo its unwanted effects can be exponentially greater than time and effort needed to produce it bullshit can be produced Mm -hmm. in a matter of seconds yet refuting it may take years and then you go into a number of different things what i think you know really struck me so let's start with the personality test because that was really fascinating Fascinating. Mm-hmm. You said personality test alone can't explain behavior and performance. Two people who have the same personality type may vary greatly in their behaviors depending on the context. Mm-hmm. Yet think about how often, you know, corporations, um, you know, individuals use personality tests to make career decisions, mm-hmm. to make hiring yeah. decisions, all that stuff. So, like, why is this? And, and you know, what's the what's the, the negative consequence of this? Well, the negative consequence um, would would certainly be, I think, basing hiring decisions, promotion decisions, uh, personnel decisions on these sort of, I want to call them, they're almost (laughs) make-believe assumptions about the connections between personality and uh, the fit for a particular type of task that one is going to do from nine to five every day. You know, so all of the, the data that we have on you know Myers Briggs types of of personality tests, and um, there's a whole sort of army of these things that have been standardized. We we know that these can be useful ways using these types of tests can be useful ways to describe behavior, and and oftentimes uh, you know they they do show some sort of test retest reliability in the sense that. You know, if you've if you've got one, you know Myers Briggs code today, you might have the same code tomorrow. There is there are changes, um, but generally these these can be decent. But you got to remember that 
these tests are all self-report. All right, so this is this is just a fancy way of describing how people tend to describe themselves. So if you respond to a hundred questions on a personality test and you say true for some and false for others, the 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 test is going to be scored, and then we're going to feed you give give you uh, some feedback on on basically in in more eloquent language than most people can produce themselves is is a description of what you said about yourself. <laughs> it's an indirect. So a lot of times people are amazed by how how it it seems to tell us exactly what we already think about ourselves, but why not? Why wouldn't it? It's just like looking into a mirror and making it look a little more flowery, you know, a little a little bit better. Um but but the predictive validity, if we say, okay, well you know, this person ha- is um, took a big five personality test, and they're highest on conscientiousness and agreeableness and openness. Okay, and we say, all right, now now let's see, um, let's try to make some connections between what kind of jobs they should be doing, or what kind of you know what what kind of uh, work units they should be in, and and what we can ask them to do. And there are, are no data, uh, conclusive data that show that. That okay, if you match uh, this personality profile with these various situations, that they're going to succeed. You know, ipso facto, it's you know that you know um, you know a, a strong correlation or a strong predictive value. It, it's just not there. And so that's why I've, I've argued you can take two people with the the exact same. Um, you know, personality profiles, Myers-Briggs or whatever. And one could be completely happy and productive and in the best position possible. Another, um, in a different situation, maybe they're doing the same kind of job, but maybe the, the, the office is arranged differently, you know, or just some, some subtle things in the context and they're completely miserable and they're unproductive because of it, you know? And, and so when you start to account for context and situation in these standardized personality measures, until you do that, you're not going to have really any data that will speak to this kind of personality situation context fit that that is ideal for productivity, you know, creativity, and and bottom line performance. So. Um, many of them are, are, are marketed as though they do that, but, but I'm not aware of, of any measures that actually look at the person by situation interactions carefully enough to say that, okay, well, the person with this profile should be in this type of, of, of work atmosphere. It's just, it's just not there. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of fluff and it's i think it's a lot of uh, it's built on this sense that oh yes it tells me exactly what i think of myself <laughs> you know and people are just they're sold by that because they they just seem so amazed and and that's that's how these measures are usually marketed it's like okay take the measure and then see what your feedback is and then people are amazed but they forget that all they did was just indirectly reported to the to the to the measurement what what they already think about themselves why would they disagree why would you disagree with something <laughs> that you've all, that you've said about yourself yeah running a business is hard 
but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so then you you go into what you say are the three good reasons why people tend to neglect the better voices of critical thinking and you know end up mm-hmm. forking over good money for bullshit. One is a preference for bullshit over truth. The second is here, you know, the idea of hearing is believing, and the third is mm-hmm. the power of intuition. Uh, let's go to the first two. I think the intuition one is really fascinating to me because intuition is such a big buzzword in the world of self improvement. But let's get to that last. Let's talk about the first two. Okay. Okay. So so. Um, the preference for bullshit, right? Um, this this can be a cognitive, a mental um, tendency, or it can be just completely motivational, right? So, so people, there's a strong tendency to uh, to adhere to what we call the confirmation bias, um, and it was almost wired to attend to that information that that from our messy data collection <laughs> um, that is just based on our own personal experiences, rarely anything more than that, we, we attend to information that confirms our, our ideas about the world. And, and we like that. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're correct um, and completely ignore anything that disconfirms it. Um, sometimes when, when it's, it's compelling data, we, we think more about it. Um, and, and even if it, if it does uh, disconfirm our, our hypotheses. The more we think about it, and the more information we get about that source of information, the more likely we are going to discredit it. Um, we know from from studies in social psychology done in the mid seventies that that was a strong tendency. If you just give people some results of a study, they say there was this uh, there was this experimental study done, and and actually um, it's it's counter to your to your beliefs about the connection between, I don't know, guns and violence, let's say. And you take someone who's, who's pro-gun, and, and, and they will show a little bit of a shift towards the opposite attitude, towards the, the implications of the results. If you, but if you just tell them, here's, this is the result, that in the 15 states that had this, they actually showed uh, more... 
um, you know, more violence with, with guns and the thing right now, just given the results, they tend to change their attitudes. But if you start to give them details or, or they have time to look at the details that on their own about that study, they tend to boomerang rebound back to their initial attitude, even more so because they tend to discount it. They say, Oh, the study was done in Texas or, Oh, it only had 15 states. It didn't even, that's not even half the states. And, and, Oh, they only, they only used women and the, as the participants or something, you know I mean? Like they, they'll find ways to discredit that, that information. So now we're back to just, you know, hyper-focusing on the, on the initial hypothesis. And so sometimes by giving people facts, it just causes them to rebound or to, to double down even more strongly to their initial opinions and attitudes and beliefs. Um, so that's, so that's there. And there's, there's many, there's, there's a, a preference for that because if there are two social motives, that are strongest from the last, I guess, 70 years of social psychology research that we know the two, two of the most frequent strongest motivations is one is to be correct in, in our, you know, to, to feel justified in our, in what we voice, what we publicize as our beliefs or in our attitudes or opinions. And then the second one is to be consistent Okay, to be correct and to be consistent. And those two motives can conflict <laughs> with one another. And especially if you publicize your opinions, your beliefs, and your, your attitudes, it's very difficult for people to, to turn back and say, you know what, Srini, I, I, was, I was wrong about that. <laughs> I didn't think that all through. I didn't have all of the data at, at the time. Now that I got more information, I realized that that my initial that that's so hard for people to say yeah you know and 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 to and to do so oh i mean um, there there are things i've written in my own books that i would go mm -hmm. back and and revise uh you know based on you know a couple more years of life you know i mean in the interest of time so there's i think the place that i really want to take this next and it'll tie into you know sort of intuition and you know uh hearing is believing because i think for people mm -hmm. listening this to me was one of the most important parts it was this whole idea of people who are high propensity bullshitters right and you said they're high propensity bullshitters are remarkably easy to spot they're the type of people who are often found mm -hmm. evangelizing and proselytizing their beliefs to anyone willing to listen that's the entire yes. world of self-improvement that's everybody on yeah. this podcast that's every one of my guests yeah. you okay. me and every guest that ever showed up um you know now i wouldn't necessarily you know criticize them for some of this stuff but mm -hmm. i you brought up a lot of things i think are you know really big the disregard for evidence which i think mm -hmm. is um rampant in um you know the world of self-improvement uh, you know on the internet um you know the other is complete reliance on anecdotal evidence and then pseudo profound language. So I'd love for you to talk about this mm -hmm. in the context of sort of the world that people listening to this are, are living in because they consume this type of information. They listen to people like you. They read books like mine. They, you know, go to Tony Robbins seminars. I I think of all the things that ever mm -hmm. struck me the most uh, on the podcast, we had Rick Allen Ross, who's a cult deprogramming expert here. And he said, nobody has done a 
properly, you know, peer-reviewed research study on the effects of any of these self-improvement seminars to show that the long-term outcomes actually lead to improvements in people's lives. Um, mm-hmm. But I'd love for you to talk about this because you criticize TED Talks, even though I know you gave one yourself. So let's mm-hmm. go into this, like y- y- expand on, you know, the pseudo-profound language, anecdotal evidence, um, and all of the things that, I mean, these are all things that literally I see on the internet all day long. And I probably yes. have done most yeah. of them myself. Yes. Yeah, and honestly, when when you have any hypothesis about how the world works, what the way people actually operate, and no matter what what it is, it's it's rather easy to find at least a couple of good stories that support <laughs> the idea, and and people are attracted to stories; they're memorable. Um, they tug at the heartstrings more. Um, they they get people to think more. Um, they give them. It, it's also easier to talk about that, right? As opposed to the statistics of of the masses, right? This this is one of the reasons why um, you know charitable organizations will run you know major ads, and they'll tell you about this one child who's you know, starving and, you know, some part of the world and they give you all of the basic information about that one child, you know, because they know people that'll move people more mentally and, and behaviorally more so than the hundreds of thousands, millions of people who are starving, you know? (laughs) So you don't give people statistics. You don't give them um, it's it's not good to give them the facts. It's better to give them a story, and it's just easy for people to find that. and And the basic pattern that I've argued that the bullshit artists tend to use is is they exploit that as much as possible. Is they'll tell you about their their best friend or their cousin or their uh, or their neighbor who had you know a reaction to, and they're and they're sure that it had it it was caused by. Uh, a vaccine, you know, like they're certain that, you know, they, they, they've got this, this one piece of information. Now, now it drives everything. It colors everything that they see. Um, and who cares about any of the data that is coming from, you know, multiple independent lines of inquiry, you know, among people who don't always agree. They, they actually, they, they rarely agree. <laughs> I mean, scientists and medical professionals, they're, they're, they're the first people to tell each other that they're wrong. You know? So to see that, to, to believe as, in, as though there's some big meeting that everyone's colluding and, and on the same page is just completely insane. It does not have any grounding in the way things actually work. But, but if you don't know how science in medicine, things like that actually work. It's it's easy to wait a couple of anecdotal pieces of you know of data, and and for that to to drive. the The other thing the the bullshitter art, artists tend to do um, again is focus on just unreliable um, types of data that that they get and they they know other people get through personal experience because. Um, even if you don't have a friend that was injured by or had some kind of um, bad reaction to a vaccine, that um, you might know someone who knows someone who who did that. Now, now you can use the story if it if it suits your purposes, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then people use, you know, they use 
uh, proverbial cliches, you know, all of the time, like, as though if there's some sort of, um, you know, some sort of wisdom hidden in this, you know, the the idea of these popular cliches, that, um, like you know, um, opposites attract, you know, versus, um, you know, bir- you know, birds of a fl- feather flock together, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean like the world. Usually when you focus on these proverbial cliches, you're going to find that there's another one that sort of disproves it, right? That it's, it's, equally, uh, it's equally correct. So, um, but that's not, but the bullshitter is not, going to, is not going to make salient both of those. They're going to just focus on why one is correct and, and here's the anecdotal data that support it, you know. Um, but they also, exag- they tend to exaggerate their own area of, of expertise, you know, uh, even if they don't have expertise, they can exactly right. <laughs> make people think I've got expertise in this. And yeah. what we do know is, is people who are often most confident about their, their competence and, and expertise are often the least competent. I mean, this is the people are, people have been writing about this Dunning Kruger effect for over 20 years now. And it's just the basic idea that the cognitive skills, the mental skills that you need to be competent in an area are the same mental skills that you need to recognize your own and others' competence. So, so people will, will express this unabashed overconfidence often in some area that they really don't know anything about. And now, if, if your audience knows as much or less it's really it's relatively easy to get away with, right? Because they're less likely to call you on BS, you know. So this is one of the reasons why I don't. I'm not going to bullshit an auto mechanic. I just don't know enough about how <laughs> cars are. They're they're going to know right away yeah. that I'm I'm bullshitting and I don't know what I'm talking about. And then and then if if they don't lead on to that, now maybe they can take advantage. They now they know I don't know what I'm talking about. But, now I, I might be taken advantage of. They might say, oh, this, this, this guy's a real sucker. He thinks he knows what he's talking about. Now I'll tell him he, that he needs some other thing that's, that, that needs done that, that is, is maybe just window dressing stuff that he doesn't really need. So, so it's just when we make it easy um, for people to kind of get away with, they'll, they'll take advantage of it. And one of the first things I've learned in my, the earliest studies on this behavior was that people will do it in every situation except one, and that is that you don't make them feel obligated to share an opinion and you don't make it easy to get away with. So if you can even it demonstrate, well, I know, I, I know some things about this, this topic. Um, and, and I, I've got some um, expertise of my own or my, I got some knowledge in this topic. You can signal to the bullshitter that, well, maybe they're not going to get away with bullshit because you probably know what you're talking about. Um, and so that's one of the, that's one of the ways to expose ourselves like right away. Um, but they don't ask bullshit artists also don't, they're not going to ask and and make salient the, the critical thinking skills questions that we need to be asking them when we can communicate with them directly. The, the, there's only three questions that you really need to ask. It's much simpler than, than, than people realize. But, but the, the first question that we should ask is what, what is the claim? You know, if we suspect someone of, of, of bullshit artistry, we should say, well, what exactly are you saying? You know, I hear you saying X, 
is what you are saying, X, and you know these other implications. Usually, what will happen is bullshit artists will start to clean it up right away. They'll say, "Well, here, here's what I'm talking about," and you know, and and just make the claim as clear as possible because we know that clarity is a major antidote to bullshit. So that you can, they'll they'll do us a favor by exposing us less than by starting to clean up and say, "Well, no, I'm not. I'm not actually saying that." Not actually saying that Bill Gates and George Soros actually paid people to, uh, you know, invade the Capitol on on <laughs> January sixth. So what I'm what I'm thinking, uh, what I really mean is that there are people who have a lot of money that are running this. Kind of, that, that they might reframe it that way, right? So so now now you've already you've already gone halfway. So then you work with that, and then if once you get through what and clarify the claim, just ask how how do you know that. How did you come to that conclusion? And even better sometimes, how would you know that that claim or that that idea is wrong? Okay? That's a much better question than why. If you ask why questions, usually what you're going to get is very heady, uh, value-laden, very abstract reasons and explanation for things, but you won't get people to talk about evidence. You'll get them to talk about evidence if you ask them how. How do you know? Um, and if you if you can get through those, ask well, what uh, ha- have you considered? You know this alternative. You know all three of these questions: what, how, and have you considered an alternative? They they help us diagnose the the real motivation behind the bullshit artist. How connected are they to truth, genuine evidence, and established knowledge? And then we can make a better decision as to whether or not we're buying what they're saying. Uh, well, I, I think, you know, I, I love that you brought this up because there's two pieces of this that I really wanted to ask you about. You talked mm-hmm. about this whole idea of pseudo profound language, and you say it's intentionally obscured through exaggerations, ambiguous mm-hmm. references, insider jargon, buzzwords, and authoritative pretense that the speaker knows about things that no one else can possibly comprehend. And you say pseudo profound bullshit contains vacuous and confusing words that obscure meaning mm-hmm. and invite people to fill in the gaps with whatever they think the nonsense yes. means while Deepak, referring to Deepak Chopra, comes mm-hmm. away sounding brilliant. And it's kind of funny that you brought him up of all people because like there's a joke among indians like this guy's not a medicine he's not a medical practitioner he's an online marketer Mm -hmm. Uh, but Mm -hmm. you know the thing is i don't think it's it's isolated Mm -hmm. to him and i I think that you know you also bring up a point about ted talks what do you what do you want people to know who are listening to this about figures like deepak chopra and content Mm -hmm. like ted talks I, i think the thing to know is that um i guess the major thing to know is that a lot of it is bullshit (laughs) <laughs> and second, that um, one of the reasons why we don't confront it is that people think, one, that they can usually detect that, and two, that it doesn't really have any negative effects, okay? And we know that it has a lot of negative effects on learning, memory, decision-making, what people believe to be true. What, what you believe to be true has an incredible impact on judgments and decisions. Um, and until people come to grips with that and accept that, one, they are susceptible to being duped by bullshit, and they're not as good at detecting it as they, as they uh, think they are, and, and again, two, to understand that there are some, uh, great disadvantages to being influenced by bullshit. So there are so many. I mean, even if you get, in, you get into, you, you go outside of New Age alternative medicine outside of Deepak Chopra world and, and also into um, business, 
I mean, we see a lot of business speak and corporate gibberish do this very same thing. There was a survey done, I think, over 15 years ago, and they had 10,000 entries, and they just asked people, what are the biggest bullshit words that you hear in the office? And, and the, 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 some of the, the top 10 words were words like leverage, value add, bandwidth, touch base, incentivize, synergy, win-win, thoughtware, words like that that people use all of the time in, in uh, oh, best practice. You know, like, you know, I mean, just all kinds of words that, that again, yeah, you can fill in what they mean and then, then, they're, then they're useful, um, but, but people don't realize that how ambiguous they actually are. Um, and until I think when, when they start to realize like, okay, this isn't clear and it's not helping me in my judgment, in my decision as to what's actually going on, uh, until it comes to, grip, to, to grips with that, um, they're going to continue to be exposed and, and to the unwanted effects of bullshit. Now, you, you mentioned TED Talks. I, I may also be one of the only TED Talk speakers, TEDx <laughs> speakers, to actually criticize TEDx TED Talks within my talk <laughs> because, because there, there is a lot of BS, but it it really it mirrors the things that we're seeing uh, for decades now in the 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 latest groundbreaking ideas and leadership and success. I mean, there's so many titles, even in best-selling titles in business today that that are completely contradictory. You know, there's 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 a title on uh, you know using love to to lead you know well there was at the same time there was a book called business is combat <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know uh, there was uh literally and, and I, if I, this was my favorite one there was you know it, it's called out of the box strategies for uh achieving profits today and growth tomorrow at the same time there was a book called thinking inside the box the 12 timeless rules for managing success you know so all of this stuff is it's it's really just a, a conglomeration of of ideas that haven't actually been tested so it's 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 the marketplace of of ideas that is just inundated with nothing more than ideas they're not things that are actually empirically validated and if it sounds intuitive it's or might it might sound interesting and groundbreaking profound and uh, it's going to have an influence. People are going to read books like um, uh, In Search of Excellence, you know, and make make a, make a decisions and think, okay, well, yeah, what we really need to do is improve our hospitality. You know, uh, <laughs> 7-Eleven did a study years ago, ago after they found that, that their hospitality training really didn't have much of an effect on sales. They thought it should after reading In Search of Excellence – Right, but but they didn't actually test it. They tested it afterwards. People who enter convenience stores do not really care about the hospitality so much. They just want to get in and out, you know. But if you if you focus on hospitality, then the long the lines get longer, <laughs> and and um, people get grumpy because they're waiting in line longer than they should be. Because now someone who's uh, you know connecting with the the employees in the store now is 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 telling their life story, right? When when you just want to pay for your diet coke and and get fuel and get out, <laughs> you know. So, but but the the experiment ex, the experimental method and testing 
empirically ideas take us much, much further than what appears to be the new, profound, groundbreaking um, ideas. There are oftentimes, they're just old ideas just waiting for someone to actually test and see if they actually have an impact on behavior. Um, so, yeah, full of assumptions and, and cliche kind of, you know, you can be the best and, 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 and be the most productive. You can be anything that you want to be. I mean, that, that, that talk has been done so many times. You know, <laughs> yeah. And it's just, but, but, but it's, it can be uplifting. People, you know, people like it and, and they, you know, uh, and they, and they watch it and, um, and, but there's, there's a better way. I mean, optimal, optimal judgment and decision-making, um, I think takes people much, much further along the paths that they actually want to go than a lot of this untested bullshit that we see yeah. plastered everywhere. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think the the place I want to wrap up is with um, talking briefly about, you know, the idea of personality traits, right? Because I think there mm-hmm. are a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm way too smart to, to fall for this bullshit. Or, mm-hmm. But you go mm-hmm. into the idea that, you know, intelligence is not enough to protect you from bullshit. Common sense isn't enough. Like, and there are certain personality traits. Like, so basically all of us are susceptible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that I bought into a lot of bullshit at times. I mean, I joined a cult for six years thinking it would help me meet women. Okay. <laughs> it was called the seduction community. Neil Strauss wrote this entire book about it, you know, and we took a handful of outliers and we decided that, oh, those guys know what they're talking about. And those guys all turned out to be sociopaths. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, and that's, that's much more common that, I mean, it just depends on, on, on how people define cults, right? I mean, like some people, um, even based on their political, um, agenda and, and positions often see, people on the other side as, as, as though, as though they belong to some sort of cult. <laughs> you know, you hear people talk about that. Um, and people are much more susceptible to cult like, uh, ideas than they realize, you know, that especially when in today's world where it's so easy to lock yourself into this, this echo chamber of life, whether it's, it's real or, or it's digital, you know, it's very easy to po- become more and more polarized in our beliefs, um, and, and opinions, because once you surround yourself with like-minded people, we've known this from actually the even mid sixties and from social psychological work that you put people together with like-minded opinions and attitudes, they become more polarized they become stronger in those in in their those beliefs because now i heard something that you know an argument that you made that i didn't actually think about before now i think i i think of it even even more strongly or you you've debunked some other um idea from the opposition and now i feel i have another reason to to have the belief it's really easy to kind of get you know trapped in that echo chamber and and rabbit hole uh, of beliefs if if you're not looking at things from a, a critical, you know, critical thinking skills 101 standpoint and being open to things that you don't necessarily agree with on the surface. I think people are usually quite reasonable, however, when they have you know, good information. So I've, I've argued that, you know, good, you know, better information does not always lead to better judgment and decision making. But better judgment and decision-making almost always require better information. And once people are open to that, I, I think they, they tend to make 
better decisions. They're much more reasonable, and the and the inferences that they make from that information is is much more rational. Um, and there's there's tons of cognitive psychology work that that supports that conclusion. Wow. Um, I feel like we could talk about this for like five hours. Like you said, this is a pretty deep <laughs> rabbit hole. Uh, so I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews, the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Something that makes someone unmistakable. What, how do you, so how do you define yeah. unmistakable? Well, if you write a book called unmistakable, as I've said before, you have to define it. And to me, it's the, some, mm-hmm. the thing that you can do that's so distinctive that nobody else could have done it, but you. Well, I'm really, I'm going to, I'm, I'm not going to bullshit you on that. <laughs> I, I'm not, I, I, I'd have to honestly have to think about that a, l- a little bit more and, and sort of the, the boundaries that's, of that. So that's fair. Given the I subject gonna, that we've talked <laughs> about, you know what? You're the first yeah. guest to ever take a pass on the question. And given the subject matter, I have no problem with that. Um, I, like I said, I think this has been absolutely amazing. Yours was one of my favorite books that I've read this year. Where can people find out more yeah. about you, um, your work, the book and everything that you're up to? Well, I'm I'm um, easy to find on Twitter at, at John V Petro, um, and anytime yeah, I mean you find me easily at uh, Wake Forest um, University Psychology on the web. Um, contact me there. My email's there. If uh, you have questions, and um, usually op- open to to questions from anyone. So amazing! And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide, it's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. 
Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.